News, notes, and Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Bonds one home run away from history. And he swings! And there's a long one deep in the right center field. Way back there. It's gone! A home run! Into the center field bleachers to the left of the 421-foot marker. An extraordinary shot to the deepest part of the yard. And Barry Bonds with 756 home runs. He has hit more home runs than anyone who has ever played the game. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 20th. It's show number 44 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and the American League with Jock Thompson. And, of course, we'll have our weekly Talk with Todd, featuring Todd Zola discussing his top 20 rest-of-season pitching projections, whether Justin Verlander still deserves a spot, and why Sonny Gray and Scott Casimir don't, and surprising answers to two whom-would-you-rather-have trade questions. In our regular Friday matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at coming matchups for Texas right-hander Nicholas Martinez, visiting L.A. to face the Angels right-hander Jared Weaver. Pittsburgh right-hander Vance Worley taking on the Cubs southpaw Travis Wood in Chicago and more. And in Masternotes, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy talks about climbing out of a hole. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And as usual, the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition is our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Let's start out with a batting buyer's guide column. Greg Pyron looked at sneaky sources of runs and RBI on top offenses. And it's a good idea. Sometimes when we're in uh, baseball HQ mode, shall I say, we concentrate really heavily on finding the most skilled players. But Greg thought that it might make sense to look for lesser skilled batters because they can help a fantasy team depending on the lineup that they're in. So what he did was he looked at the top five offenses in each league and picked out one lesser skilled batter from each of them. And one of the top offenses in the National League was Miami, which is something of a surprise in and of itself. And out of the Marlins crew, Greg looked at first baseman Garrett Jones. Yeah, Garrett Jones, you know, Garrett Jones is having a decent season. He's 261 with nine homers and 32 RBIs at this point. And, you know, we, you know, we, we tend to stay away from Garrett Jones because he's, uh, he's had a bit of a problem. He always has had a problem hitting left-handers, and that's always pulled down his batting average. I mean, his left-handed, his left-handed splits are very poor, 468 OPS. 13 strikeouts in 47 at-bats this season against left-handed pitching. But, you know, the Marlins have caught on to this and are finally beginning to play him just against right-handers. Uh, and so that's helping to prop up the batting average. And there's some other really good skills there. We're looking at a, uh, at a, a, a power index of 129, an expected power index of 149, a, a hard contact index of 118. So here's a guy who's hitting the ball really, really hard 
and if he only plays against uh, against right-handed pitchers, is making contact at around, right around a 75% contact rate, which which is not too bad. Uh, and hitting fifth in the Marlins lineup, which puts him in a good spot to drive in runs, uh, perhaps a little less in terms of runs scored, but RBIs, you might get something out of Garrett Jones that you might not expect. Yeah, it always surprises me that we don't see enough or pay enough attention to that whole platoon advantage idea. I, I mean, I covered it a little while ago where, where you can look at these players and say to yourself, gosh, if we had a situation where you could either stream him in daily, uh, some leagues allow that, or if you are playing the daily games, and you look at Garrett Jones and you see there's a right-handed pitcher coming up against the Marlins, all of a sudden he's not the player he looks like when you look at his overall stats because against just right-handed pitching, he's three or four degrees better than that and all of a sudden becomes a playable option, often at a very reduced price. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, these kind of things are worth looking at. And, of course, as the as the teams catch on and give him less exposure to, to players he's pitchers he struggles against, he becomes an even better fantasy option. Baseball HQ's projecting Jones for 11 home runs down the stretch, 39 RBIs and a two forty three batting average in two seventy seven at-bats. It could be a little higher than that if they really restrict his at-bats against left-handers. Could be worth more than 10 bucks that we currently have him for. In Thursday's Facts and Flukes Performance Validation Analysis, Jeff Tomich of Baseball HQ looks at starting pitcher Jake Arietta of the Cubs, and he says that Arietta might finally be losing that dreaded label of a 4A pitcher. What is Jake Arietta doing right, Nick? Well, you know, Jake Arietta is one of those guys that you look at, you, you, you may think we're crazy. You've been talking about Jake Arietta after uh, we've been waiting for him to break out for how many years and, and finally uh, got traded to the Cubs and it's going to happen. I mean, come on, guys. You know, I can yeah. hear folks out there saying that. But look, look at what Jake Arietta has done recently. Uh, look back at his, at his past, uh, let's see, if you go back to his past four games, he's allowed only two earned runs in his last four outings. Uh, pitching very, very well. Last game, and this may have got, gotten him off the uh, off the map in terms of uh, in terms of being invisible against the Marlins uh, in Miami. Seven innings pitched, one earned run, eleven strikeouts, one walk. Um, not a bad line at all, and that's not out of line with what he's been doing this season. At this point in the year, a 1.98 ERA, a 9.9 DOM, a 2.7 control. So. That, that nemesis of being able to, uh, unable to find the plate, he seems to have finally conquered. A 53% ground ball rate. Lots of good things happening with Jake Arrieta. Uh, Stephen Nickran looked at, at him a few weeks ago as well and said that he's not for the risk-averse, and that's true, but he should be back on, on, on radars at this point. And uh, if you've got a uh, want to take a chance on a pitcher who could be having a real breakout season, uh, Arrieta's a guy to look at. I went all the way back to May 22nd, Nick, and in his last six starts, he has four PQS5 starts, which is as good as they can be, a PQS4, and that one was against the uh, Giants, uh, and then oddly enough, against the Mets, who are nobody's idea of a powerhouse, a, th- a PQS zero. Um, uh, you know, you never know with pitching, but it was because he didn't reach five innings, of course, which is an automatic disqualification as far as PQS is concerned. He's got two starts against Miami in that time, one of the better offenses in the league, as we mentioned earlier. PQS fives both times. Yeah, yeah, he does. And you know, in that PQS zero against the Mets, he got to four and two thirds innings and only allowed one earned run. So we don't quite know what happened. He was uh, having some problems with the control that day. He had three walks in those four and two thirds innings, which was was unusual for him and was not striking out as many. So it may have been command issues or 
or something else strange going on. But as you said, uh, we've got a kind of a good streak going with Arietta in terms of uh, a PQS dominant performances. So if he's not on your radar, certainly a guy to look at. And in that start against the Mets, I should mention, it was 105 pitches when they pulled him out, so clearly he was struggling, and I guess they must have just looked at it and said, enough's enough. It's like throwing in the towel when you got a fighter out there who's uh, taking a few too many to the noggin. Yeah, I think that's, that's certainly true, and he certainly had thrown a lot of pitches that day. In fact, that's his, that was his season high up until his most recent start at Miami. BaseballHQ.com, still not that optimistic about Arietta projecting just four wins, uh, 438 ERA, 140 whip, 62 strikeouts to come in 72 innings. It's uh, like a 3 or $4 guy. Yeah, yeah but the, you know, the thing to remember about those projections is, is the, the player projections are not based on expecting a breakout. They're based on historical performance. And if you look at Arietta's historical performance, uh, certainly that's a reasonable projection. But if he keeps going the way he's going, he's uh, certainly going to be worth far more than that. And it's funny you should mention that because uh, in a while we'll be talking with Todd Zola in our regular Friday talk with Todd, and one of the things we'll be discussing is how do you build in a projection for the balance of the season based on a baseline that was made before the season started. And sometimes you have to make those adjustments a little more radically than you might like to. Uh, There's a far more optimistic report from Stephen Nickrand in his Starting Pitching Buyer's Guide where he looked at pitchers by their base performance value with the bases empty versus with runners on. And a pitcher he likes for the second half is the Braves' Alex Wood. Alex Wood, is, he said, is one of eight pitchers with a 125-plus BPV, both with the bases empties and with the runners on base. And kind of the important thing about Alex Wood at this point that, that uh, owners may remember, uh, Alex Wood started out in the rotation, was, was uh, sent to the bullpen because there was kind of an overloaded rotation in Atlanta, uh, then was demoted to the minors, and I'm not sure a lot of people really knew why. The reason, the reason Wood was sent down to the minors was that he was – it wasn't that he was pitching poorly. It was that he was going to get stretched out again to be ready to come back to the rotation. And that, that return to the rotation was intended for June the 28th. Now with the uh, injury that uh, happened to Gavin Floyd, it looks like he'll be back sooner than that uh, and will, will not make his last intended turn in the minors and will be back in the starting rotation next week. Uh, and Alex Wood is a very, very fine pitcher. Uh, at this point, a 3.43 ERA, a 132 BPB, BPV, a 314 XERA, um, 9.4 dominance, 2.2 control. Uh, here's a guy that can really help your pitching staff. And in fact, if you go back last year, uh, a 3.13 ERA for the season. So uh, Alex Wood is certainly a guy worth, uh, worth taking a look at. And in a lot of leagues, he may have been dropped once he was demoted. So he could be out there on your free agent pool or waiver wire, however your league works it. Guy to grab, Alex Wood. Also a top prospect, uh, Nick. We we uh, all liked him right at the start of his career, and these ups and downs sometimes make people a little leery. Um, what Stephen Nickrand is saying, and I think you're saying as well, is jump while you can. Very definitely. And finally, bullpens columnist Doug Dennis of Baseball HQ looks at every pitcher projected to earn at least three saves in the balance of the year in his latest column, and one of the unexpected names in a list of 50 pitchers with three saves to come, the Cubs right-hander Neil Ramirez. What is it that Doug sees with this pitcher, Neil Ramirez, of the Cubs? Well, Neil Ramirez is pitching extremely well. At this point, a 1.06 ERA, uh, 26 strikeouts in 17 innings, a 180 BPV. He's simply pitching very, very well. 
and 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 there had been uh, the reason he got those two saved was that Hector Rondon was having uh, some some slight elbow issues. He, uh, Rondon is back closing now. It looks like he's going to be the closer, but elbows can flare up. You don't know really what's going on with that elbow, and so uh, it, it's it's worth if if you're a, a Hector Rondon owner, I would pick up Neil Ramirez right now. If you're prospecting for saves for the second half, the kind of skills that Neil Ramirez is putting up are certainly worth speculating on. Uh, Rondon is far from an established closer. Anything could happen, and Ramirez could find himself thrust into that role very, very quickly. And he certainly has proven that he's, he's capable of being successful in the role if he gets the opportunity. Ramirez got a few saves earlier this year when he was chosen over Pedro Strope. When Rondon was on the shelf, as you mentioned, Nick, we're projecting five saves down the stretch, a couple of vulture wins, a 4.22 ERA with 35 strikeouts and 32 innings. But as you mentioned, there's a chance for more. Excellent advice, Nick. Thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD, good to be here. Let's start with Oakland, uh, one of the best teams in baseball, maybe the best by some measures, and they keep having trouble with their starting pitching. They've suffered through a couple of season-ending injuries for guys they were really counting on, and then they started getting some decent starts from Drew Pomerantz, and then he had a bad outing and uh, responded by going down and punching the wall in the dugout, and now he's on the DL with a broken hand, luckily his non-pitching hand. A lot of people thought Dan Straley would be recalled, but it looks like instead they're going to go with journeyman Brad Mills that they acquired recently. Rod Truesdell covered all of this in the Thursday Playing Time Today space. How long is Pomerantz going to be out, and is this a solution that can last with this Brad Mills? Yeah, I was uh, I was like um, uh, Rod. I thought that Straley was going to get the call, partly because there's, there's often a pecking order in these things, and Mills had just been acquired earlier that week by Oakland. But clearly the A's think that Straley still has work to do, as suggested by his most recent AAA start where he gave up, uh, I think, let me see here, he gave up a couple of home runs and four walks and five innings. That's been his problem at the major league level. So they're going to keep him down there. Uh, On the other hand, Mills has been pitching really well at AAA. He has some major league experience. And this is kind of a nice time for Oakland to see what they have in him and if, if Mills is a guy who can, can give any of their starting pitchers a break down the stretch. Remember, they got uh, Jesse Chavez and Pomerantz and Malone. Those guys, their, pitch, their innings count uh, is, is a real concern in August and, and September. Even Casimir and Sonny Gray are going to be interesting to watch in the late season. Um, Oakland has a good lead right now. Now is kind of the time to try some things, I think. Yeah, certainly Kazmir's had trouble getting up into the high innings, and Sonny Gray, of course, uh, relatively young and hasn't had that much experience either. So uh, it looks like as their starting pitcher goes, so so shall go the Oakland Athletics. They're scoring a ton of runs. They're playing good defense. Everything looks good except for their pitching, and that could be a concern because, uh, as you say, there's uh, a lot of guys here who don't have a lot of stretch experience. Yeah, it's really going to be a, kind of a wear and tear thing, and that's why whenever anyone asks who I think is going to is going to sail through the postseason or even get to the postseason, I I usually say you know I'd rather defer that question until uh, mid-August and let's see what shape they're in there, let's see how healthy they are, and let's see how well their pitching is doing because. Uh, 
a lot can happen over the long season. On a recent show, you mentioned Kevin Kiermeyer of Tampa as an interesting short-term play because Will Myers was out of the lineup. Now David DeJesus has broken his hand and he's out of the lineup as well. So Kiermaier is really going to get a chance to show what he's got in in the next few weeks. Uh, Chris Olson mentioned him in the American League East playing time tomorrow column, and Matt Dodge mentioned him in playing time today after DeJesus got hurt. Kiermaier has been pretty productive so far and has been kind of a human highlight reel on defense, but will this last? And just generally, what do you think of this Kevin Kiermaier? Well, in the deep leagues in, in, that I play in, particularly around midseason when my regular players are hitting the DL, I'm always looking for guys with a skill or two who can produce for a couple of weeks and, and maybe longer with a little opportunity or, or luck. And the thing I saw in Kiermaier is a left-handed batter, like you said, who plays outstanding defense. He has some speed, and even though he hasn't been very prolific in the minors as a base runner, he has a very good base stealing percentage. He hits too many ground balls to take advantage of his natural strength for, for very long. But as we're seeing initially, he's a strong guy. He's collected a bunch of uh, extra base hits. Um, in the early going. Now that said, if you have Kiermaier on your team, you should always keep keep an eye out on your free agent list or in your minor leagues for the next outfielder because uh, this may not last. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, uh, you know, if, if he was this good a player, you'd think Major League Baseball would have found a place for him a little earlier. As it is, we're projecting a baseball HQ around 200 at-bats the balance of the season, a two sixty eight average with three homers and 13 RBIs, and six bags. It could be a 9 or $10 pickup for you, and uh, depending on what happens with the Tampa lineup there, having trouble scoring runs too, maybe this guy gets a, a few extra at-bats, uh, maybe has a chance to be more of a contributor, but I wouldn't bet on it. No, you're right, and and the other thing you got to look at if if we're if we're looking at the optimistic uh, side of things, he he's he's 24 years old, so there is time for him to grow. He's he's kind of a late bloomer. He he could improve a little bit, and uh, young guys bring energy at times to a team, and uh, he, he's showing some of that energy right now. Yeah, and that can count for something with a team that seems like every year they struggle to figure out everything they need to do to realize their potential, and they are really struggling this year. Also in the American League East in Boston, the Red Sox have finally released Grady Sizemore, an experiment that they tried and didn't work out. They called up third-base prospect Garen Caccini to take Sizemore's roster spot and basically sit on the bench until Shane Victorino returns from rehab, whenever that is. Uh, Matt Dodge looked at all of this in playing time today, and Chris Olson also touched on it in his American League East playing time tomorrow. What do you think is going to happen once the dust settles in the Boston outfield? Yeah, Sizemore just couldn't be carried any longer uh, due to to, uh, Daniel Navas' resurgent and, of course, Brock Holt now playing in the outfield and, of course, the pending return of Victorino. But as uh, Chris Olson notes, there's going to be some considerable churning ahead in the Boston outfield. They've signed Andrus Torres, who could be an option soon, and, of course, you have Mookie Betts getting his feet wet in the outfield at AAA Pawtucket, although he likely won't even be considered until August and perhaps not until September, depending on where Boston is in the hunt for a postseason spot. But Boston is looking for outfield solutions. Their outfield has been extremely unproductive all year until recently with uh, with Holt and Nava. Uh, they're like the first guys, I think, who've been hitting over 250 for a while. Whoever hits is going to play in Boston. Uh, it's it's going to be all about immediate production, and matchups are going to determine the day-to-day lineups. And even Nava's relative nice hot streak of late, but it wasn't that long ago that he was on the, on the outbound train to Pawtucket before circumstances intervened and he got called back. So Nava's not exactly a sure thing either. 
Now that's right. Uh, all a lot of these guys are short-term solutions. Um, and uh, and Nava was you're you're absolutely right. Nava was sent down to the minors, and and the only reason he's playing now is again he's a left-handed hitter who is getting hits. And Andres Torres has a background in Major League uh, Baseball, but. Uh, the last couple of years, he wasn't that productive. Nonetheless, uh, with Boston struggling as much as they are, could he actually be on the 25-man roster and an option in their in their outfield lineup? Yeah, that's it's really a good question. It really depends on how he does uh, a AAA Pawtucket to start out with um, and uh, uh, whether he can earn a promotion and take advantage of an, any opportunity he can find in, uh, in Boston. It's, it's an interesting situation there. Yeah, interesting is sometimes not what people want. They want a little more certainty than they want interestingness. And uh, this is probably one of those situations. I imagine Boston fans, but especially fantasy owners, would like to know what the heck is going to go on in that outfield situation. One of the best stories, Jock, this year in all of baseball has been the tremendous play of the Kansas City Royals. They uh, actually moved into first place in the American League Central by giving uh, the Detroit Tigers a couple of thumpings. And one of the uh, real good stories in Kansas City has been Danny Duffy, the left-handed pitcher, once a top prospect. Then he had Tommy John surgery. Now he's back. And Bob Berger covered him in Wednesday's Playing Time Tomorrow coverage of the American League Central. Duffy started off poorly again, but has had a terrific June. Is this a buying opportunity? You know, yeah, I, I think so, or at least tentatively. I mean, if if you look at Duffy's history, he's a guy who could never control his pitch counts. He he always uh, he walked a lot of hitters. He struck out a lot of hitters too. But if you look at his June, um, he's got a 104 BPV. He's got a 3.8 command, which of course is our our strikeout ratio to walks. Uh, his control has improved dramatically over this last month, and there's something about winning that uh, that I like. He's got a 1.75 ERA over 26 innings. He's going deep into games. He's always had really good stuff, so yeah, why not? Having said all that, uh, BaseballHQ.com's projection engine is not so sanguine about Danny Duffy looking for maybe three wins down the stretch, but a 431 ERA, a 140 whip is the projection. He's going to have 43 strikeouts, and we're only calling him for 48 innings. That could be a reflection of his past injury problems. Minus three bucks, minus four bucks. Even given that, you'd take a chance on this guy. Yeah, I would. I mean, particularly if you're if you're if you're um, speculating on pitching right now, obviously. Our projections have to assume a lot about the past, and, and Duffy's past hasn't exactly been exemplary. I'm more basing it on his natural stuff and what I'm seeing in June. And again, I'm not replacing any of the rotation guys I have who've, do, who've done this for three, four years. But if you need a roster spot at the end, uh, or a, ro- uh, a roster spot at the end of your rotation, um, he's a guy you might want to you might want to try out. The Texas Rangers have had nothing but injuries all year. Uh, they lost Prince Fielder. Mitch Moreland stepped in. Now he's out for the season. Rod Truesdell covered it in playing time today. Uh, Brad Snyder, Donnie Murphy, even Carlos Pena. Can you believe any of this? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, that first base situation you really want to stay away from. Um, Snyder looks like he's going to get a lot of at-bats because he's a, he's a lefty. Um, Donnie Murphy is a little bit interested in, in that in the past. He has hit home runs in bushels um, over 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 a stretch of time. I think he did that last year for the Cubs in Wrigley Field. Um, Arlington is an interesting place um, in the summer. Obviously, the balls fly out of there. Um, if you can catch these guys on a streak, fine. But boy, you just you just can't rely on any of these names. Carlos Pena, I was I was stunned that uh, that they would uh, that they'd even sign him. I think he's uh, he's in AAA right now. 
he may get a shot, but Carlos Pena hasn't hit above 200 in years, and is, and 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 even now his power has been has been disappearing quickly. Um, it's it's kind of a mess in there in Texas. Finally, Jock, close to home for you. The LA Angels have had a little bit of difficulty managing their bullpen all year, and uh, of late it's been a really terrible situation. The other night, I believe last Thursday night, they were playing. They had a uh, went into extra innings, scored a couple, and then uh, instead of bringing in Frieri to get the save, they brought in Cam Bedrosian, whose name you mentioned here on the show. And Bedrosian, two hits, a walk to load the bases, only got one out. Then they brought in Frieri to save the day, and he got an out and then gave up a grand slam home run to lose the game. Although I think uh, Bedrosian actually took the loss in the statistics. Uh, we liked Cam Bedrosian last week. Do we still like him as much? What the heck is going to go on here? What are the Angels going to do with this bullpen? Yeah, really? You think the Angels are having a little trouble managing their bullpen, you know, these days and, and going forward? Uh, this is a disaster right now. And uh, again, on Bedrosian, my take on, on Cam is that he's a better long-term play than he's a short-term play. Clearly, he looks rushed, and, 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 and it speaks to the lack of Angel bullpen depth that they brought him up without any AAA innings with, I you know, I think something around 20 AA innings. Um, they just don't have the arms down there. Ernie Frieri's home run bouts are getting worse and worse. They're becoming more frequent. I think I think his home runs per nine inning is 2.5. So obviously he's 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 giving up home runs, and you can't trust him uh, in these situations. He still misses a lot of bats. I think right now they're going to go pretty much to a committee and and pitch whoever is uh, is uh, is doing well. I would expect Joe Smith to get some more saves. I was really shocked at Sosha's decision to put in Bedrosian uh, uh, to start that inning. It was a it was a strange decision. It was one of the worst I've seen that he's made in a long time. I just don't think Bedrosian has showed the composure he needs to pitch at the MLB level, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's demoted soon. But in the meantime, it was either him or or uh, Frieri, and clearly Frieri has lost Sosha's confidence. Yeah, I'm I'm if I'm a buyer and he's and he's available, I'm I'm taking Joe Smith. Uh, Mike Morin is a little bit interesting uh, in that he's kept runs off the board, but his his dominance is light. Uh, I don't see him as a long-term uh, uh, closer. Um, it, it's awful. It's a mess. We'll leave that as the last word. It's a mess. Jock, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you in a week's time. All right, PD. See you next week. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he writes regularly for the site as well. He's also our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our regular Friday Talk with Todd is next. Todd Zola coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Playing fantasy baseball is about having fun, so have more fun more often with one-month fantasy games at ChandlerPark.com. One-month games offer the best of both worlds, the fast action and excitement of daily games with the strategy and tactics of full-season formats. You draft your team using set salaries, all based on player performance. Then you set your roster twice a week, playing matchups and hot hands. Best of all, one bad month doesn't sink your whole season. And a fast start puts you in the money that much quicker. More fantasy fun, more often, with one month fantasy games at ChandlerPark.com. This is Ron Chandler, monthly fantasy baseball. More drafts, more pennant races, more fantasy fun, more often. Give it a try. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, Friday News and Notes Edition. I'm Patrick Davitt. Keep your eyes peeled this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. In his Fanalytics column, Ron Shander looks at For Lover Money, an essay on how important money prizes are in today's fantasy baseball environment. 
Brent Hershey has an on-the-scene report from the Carolina-California All-Star Game. And Dr. HQ, Rick Wilton, reports on the latest parade of ambulances with such players as Trevor Plouffe, Yonder Alonso, Bronson Arroyo, and David Carpenter heading onto the DL. Plus, we have all our regular features, daily analysis of changes in playing time, performance validation in facts and flukes, our buyer's guide, pitcher matchups reports, and much more. It's all on the site now or coming up soon at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday Talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ChandlerPark.com, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Todd, welcome back to the show. Good to be back, Patrick. Todd, let's start with some debate that ensued after you released a list of your top 20 starting pitchers for the balance of the season. You mentioned that making a list like this for you is a highly automated process that relies pretty heavily on algorithms, as does our whole industry, frankly. And I know we have to trust those systems, but then you wondered, do you need to be more open to making gut-level changes? When you look at your list, you got to say, boy, that guy seems out of place. What was your thinking about that question, and what did you ultimately decide? Well, there were two, there were two reasons that got me thinking if I need to sort of uh, change my ways just a little bit. The first of which is with the daily game being so popular and pitching being such an important aspect of the daily game, I know for a fact that the pl- the players that play and the and the people that analyze spend a great part of their research into looking at the starting pitching on an individual pitcher by pitcher basis. And sort of hand in hand with that is there are, are a lot more stats available. There's a lot more data available now to analyze an individual pitcher as opposed to indivi- analyzing pitchers as a group. So while in order for the industry, myself, and anybody else that does updated projections to get information out to our audience in a timely fashion, you know, you, you know, every time we do an update, by the time we're ready to publish it, someone's gotten hurt or lost a closer job and we got to do it again there needs to be some automation but on the other hand especially if we're at all involved in the daily game we need to have more fine-tuning done because other people that are only looking at eight pitchers every day or ten pitchers every day are doing it so i think that was sort of was my thinking was a slightly different audience and there's more information available sure it's going to take me more time but I, to keep up with the joneses i need to i need to i need to do it i need to invest the time yeah it, it for a season outlook like these lists have yours baseballhq.com does one uh, well they have a projections that you can make a list out of and so forth it seems like these are going to be very valuable to people who are looking for trade opportunities in full season leagues. That is, they're going to be looking for guys who seem out of place, that you have more confidence in perhaps than the market does, and they're going to go out and try to make deals for that. And I'm wondering, under those circumstances, ignoring the daily game for the time being, um, is there still room for an algorithm-only system, or do you still need to think about tweaking once your once your algorithm returns a list of 20 and presumably maybe 20 more underneath that that you didn't uh, publish, is there room for you to then go in and say, you know what, on the basis of my experience, on the basis of what I know, on the basis of what I've seen so far this year and so forth, I'm willing to ignore the algorithm to a certain point and bump up pitcher Z over pitcher W? 
Absolutely, especially I sort of, uh, on my own list, I, I gave it, I don't know, kind of a sniff test, and I looked at a couple of pitchers, and I said, geez, if I was offered, you know, this pitcher in a trade, how many other pitchers would I accept? And it didn't match up with my list. There were people that were ranked higher on the list that I wouldn't have traded. I wouldn't have traded the, the number 18 guy for, you know, the 17, 16, 15, 14, 13, you know, that sort of, so I said, well, if in my own game playing, I'm not going to make that trade, I need to have a list that better matches how I would play, or I need to play differently. But I, so I, I think that it, it sort of it comes down to is is the pro, was the is my problem the in season adjustment, or is it my original expectation? And at least in the two examples that we used. This week on a uh, the KFF KFFL roundtable, I've concluded, and I think it's fairly obvious that it was my original estimation of the players in, in question, Justin Verlander and Masahiro Tanaka. I had it turns out my baseline, what I expected back in April, was incorrect for both. So I I need to do more thinking about my original expectation than the in season one. But I do think I can't just put, lay it all on that because there are other as, as as well. I do need to think of some in-season uh, adjustments. Is is that going? Is it working? Once I come up with a new baseline, you know, I, I need to, I do need to look at both. Well, you mentioned Verlander. I compared your list to the top BaseballHQ.com projections for starters. I just found all the starters on the projected list and then uh, sorted them by rotisserie value and. Only four pitchers on the HQ list were not on yours and vice versa. So 16 out of 20, which is a pretty pretty good match. Uh, most of them were within you know one or two spots as well. But one of the guys who was a real big difference, and you mentioned him, was Justin Verlander. And this guy's been a perennial all-star, uh, year-to-year fantasy stud, Cy Young Award winner. You kept him at number 20 on your list. He's all the way down at number 54 at BaseballHQ.com. And you mentioned asking some of your industry colleagues to comment at KFFL Roundtable. And many of them asked you whether Justin Verlander deserves to keep a spot in the top 20. He's having a poor year. We both agree on that, especially by his standards. So how did you determine that he needed to stay in the top 20 on your list? Well, for at least at least through that, that, that particular update, I decided to just stick with the system and not go through the tweaking process, partially because I knew within a week I was going to be in San Francisco at the FSTA with some colleagues that I trust in this area, and I wanted to sort of talk to them and and find out about talk to them about the new data, some other stuff that's out there, and, and and am I the only one going through this conundrum and what they're doing about it? So I figured if I wait a week, you know, by my next update, which I'm in the process of doing now, I I'm and it turns out I am going to be much more willing to you know red pen on my own some of these some of these uh, adjustments that I think are necessary. Uh, I think with Verlander in particular, put too much of the expectation lied in his still wonderful years of 2011 and 2012, and you know 2013 started to go down. I think although there were a lot of people that were optimistic that his second half and into the playoffs last year was going to portend a, you know at least that level of play in 2014, which it obviously hasn't. 
but even so, so you know, as I'm saying, the second part of the equation is so even if I was wrong on my baseline, I'm still not fast enough to make that adjustment this year. So that's what I need to look at too. Are the are the, uh, are the, are the markers where I you know what 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 kicks in an adjustment in the up in the in season updates? Do I need to accelerate making? The, do I either need to accelerate the automation that does it, or do I need to sort of set up a Let's compare how they're doing, uh, you know, their in-season stats with their expectation. Anybody whose performance is different by a certain amount, let me flag them and take the time to look at them on an individual basis. So you mean a guy like Verlander is projected for $25 in your baseline projection preseason. He's in at, you know, $3 or minus one or whatever he is at now that that's something that should pop out of your system and warn you at least to have a second look? Yeah, exactly. Whether it's dollar value or... Yeah, right. Whatever I want to do, sure. Yeah, exactly that. Because you know, if he's work, if he's three dollars now and twenty five dollars going in, my rest of season projection is probably nineteen or twenty dollars. So you know, which is which is the real issue? You know, at this point, which is the real issue? Is uh, is is that you know that? So the twenty to twenty five might not be flagged, but the three dollars to twenty five sure would be. And that's when I take a look and, and do a little research and find that about as velocity over and under 95 miles an hour and he's throwing far far few pitches the average velocity is down because he's throwing much fewer pitches less than 95 and you know the, all those sorts of things and uh if i don't want to just get into the i don't want to make changes just to make the list match my intuition i think that's where we get into problems but if there is you know and this is a gray area what i consider tangible might not be what you consider tangible what might not be what you know Stephen Nickrand considers tangible as far as starting pitching goes, but whatever I consider tangible, I would be willing to make that adjustment by hand. And then the next step, though, is, is thinking about: is this a global incorporation into the system that I need to do, or is this specific to just Justin Verlander or, or somebody else who's having a similar issue, you know, with numbers and not having things mesh? Well, you mentioned Masahiro Tanaka of the Yankees. You you started him before the season with a relatively low baseline. His performance, of course, has surprised a lot of analysts, and let's be fair about that. But he's still down around, I think, 18 on your list, and some of your uh, KFFL roundtable colleagues said that's too low. Is, does Do all of these same things apply to a guy like him who's sim- simply outperforming everybody else, uh, uh, everybody's expectations, that is? Well, he he's the perfect... He's the argument for those of you that want to say I'm not making the adjustments fast enough, because who knew what his baseline was? Honestly, uh, you know, we we didn't know the baseline, so I don't think you can blame anybody's system or or laud anybody's system if they get the baseline right. It was a guess, but am I now adjusting fast enough because he's now pitched, you know, several, you know, two and a half months into a season at a you know, forget rookie of the year level. He's in the Cy Young talk. Uh, you know, we can talk all we want. Is he going to be able to sustain it? You know, it, it, once the workload adds up and, and, and this, that, and the other thing, the travel starts to add up, the, the weather's going to get warmer, that sort of thing. So he might not end you know, He's top five now. He may not end up top five. And none of the Knights argued top five. Some of my readers did, but that's okay. The Knights still had that, you know, well, we haven't seen it yet, so let's be a little conservative, make him top 10. Personally, I think he should be in the top 15. I sh- you know, if, if if he doesn't 
move organically because he's had one fantastic start since I did the numbers. If that's not enough to kick in the movement, I will put him, you know, at least into the top 15, probably top 12 on my own. Uh, but so that what I do need to look at, though, is why did why hasn't he organically already moved that fast? If in my mind I'm only going to trade him for 11 other players, why does the system not quite yet say that? So you know, is is you know is my intuition better than the system, or is there some tweak I need to make within the system to have them? be a little bit more compatible. Kind of a scouts versus stats argument like we have about prospects a lot of the time. That is, you're, you have all, all your numbers and you're confident in your algorithm because it has performed well over the years for you. And, uh, and then every so often there's just going to be outliers. And to what extent do you think maybe we just have to accept that there are going to be outliers and there's not a, really a hell of a lot we can do about it? I think there obviously you have to accept that, but I think this, this sort of ties back into the the daily game where there's so much more scrutiny being placed and i i know we're talking year long but the the tie into the daily game is the the expectation even on a particular one single day is still based off the foundation of how you expect them to perform for that season then with marginal changes based upon matchups and the whatnot and if my baseline for masahiro tanaka isn't as rosy as somebody else's, then my daily projection for him won't be as rosy either. And I might not have him on my, you know, take Masahiro Tanaka in your daily game list, whereas somebody else will. And, you know, that somebody else is going to score that day and, or, you know, cash in that day. And whoever read my recommendations not, and it's not going to be good for me. So, so, so that's sort of, that ties into it as well. But sure, there you're not going to get everybody right and there just there are going to be exceptions you know even you know the daily anybody who plays a daily game knows that especially with pitching where you know just as you expect you know some guy to get lit up and you put a lot of batters against him that's the pitcher that goes out and throws you know seven strong with three hits allowed and one on you know one earned run or something so you can't be that fine with with the projections you have to accept the fact there's going to be variance and you're not going to get everything right let alone you know on a, on a season long let alone on a one day but you i think that you can't fall back on that and and not try to figure out how to make it better one of your respondents lore michaels a mutual friend and of course your business partner as well argued uh, that sunny gray and scott casimir of the a's both belong in your top 20 list uh, we can agree, I think, also that Lore has a bit of a soft spot for the A's, and maybe that's coloring his judgment a little bit. They are both having terrific years, and indeed, Scott Casimir is number 14 on Baseball HQ's top 20, although Gray is outside the list. Why does your list not include Scott Casimir? And I think this is interesting. Now, you're saying coloring judgment, but it also could be the other end. He could be more in tune. You know, we have to. it can go both ways. It could be... You know, that sort of, it, it can go both ways. He can be a fan, but he can also have seen these guys and seen something I don't see. With, with Kazmir, it's actually quite simple. Again, whether I'm right or wrong remains to be determined, but it's simply a matter of health and playing time. And that Scott, Scott Kazmir has not pitched more than 200 innings in any season except one, and that was in 2007. He missed basically two complete years in 2011 and 2012, he threw you know, one and two-thirds innings one of those years and, and missed the other year completely. Uh, and in the years in between, 
he averages around 150 innings pitched. So if you believe that this is a new Scott Casimir, that he's going to stay healthy, and then he's going to throw the the requisite 200 innings total, which gives him approximately 110, 120 more to be in the top 20, because that's what the other guys are going to do that are in the top 20 or top 15, then sure, the numbers should be there. The, the, the metrics point towards a sustaining the present skill levels within, obviously, within variance. But there, there's nothing that says what he's doing is fluke, is luck, and it's BABIP, and it's home runs and that sort of thing. There, there might be a small correction, but it's real. I just, I'm not ready yet to assume that he's going to throw more than another, you know, 70 or 80 innings and end up in the neighborhood of the 150, 160. Maybe, you know, that's completely, you know, this, is, this isn't a numbers thing. This is just sort of the health thing. And, you know, is he a new pitcher now and, and, and isn't as likely to get injured? I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. And I, when I do my in-season playing time updates, I struggle with that a lot this time of year. Take a guy like Troy Tulowitzki. He hasn't had that big injury yet, but we all, we all, you know, shaved off his at-bats at the beginning of the season. And if I take what I projected for him and just subtract out what he has now and use that as my rest of season at-bats, he's going to be barely in my top 100 because he's getting so few plate appearances for the rest of the season. So you sort of have to artificially, you know, not artificially, but you have to raise your expectation for plate appearances. Uh, well, he's gone through half the year without getting hurt, but he doesn't often get hurt till the end of the year. So it's just, geez, do I just stick with the guns and, and keep Tulowitzki's plate appearances down because he always gets hurt? Or maybe this is the year and, you know, how silly will I look if he wins the MVP and I had him as a the 102nd best player in the league on June 20th. So it, it, forget the numbers. This playing time issue is sort of you know it's important and it's connected to projections and it's it's you know it's it's a it's a matter too that it just just don't know exactly how to handle each and every year. And sometimes there's a bit of recency bias in a guy like Tulowitzki. It was not that long ago uh, in 2011 or so he he had played in 143 games uh, the odd year before that 151 the odd year before that 155 and the odd year last year 126 which is uh, quite a big loss and his Big DL stints really have only come once. That was in 2012 when he only played 47 games. So is it possible that our systems, and all systems do this, over-reflect recent experience at the expense of the bigger picture? Sure, or maybe maybe we should, if we're using a weighted average, and, and, and if that 47 game is the outlier, maybe just take out take it out. Because, again, here's more some in, more individual analysis. It's fairly well known that the Rockies are giving Tulowitzki some more periodic rest than a team would usually give an MVP candidate. You know, he's getting Sundays off, you know, day games after night games. He's almost being treated like a catcher in some instances. Now, not all of his injuries are the pulls and the and the stretch, the pulls, hamstrings, and that sort of thing. Like, w- w- this is the sort of, this like, in theory that this should help. But it, it, it does keep one fresher, and the fresher one is, I think, the the less likely they are to get some of these other fluky-type injuries. So, you know, they, you know the, if I'm looking for something tangible, if I hold myself to needing something tangible in order to make a change, if someone, a long-time reader, says, geez, you never do this sort of thing, I could say, well, 
You know, I read, you know, the, the, the Rockies organization report says they're going to rest Tulowitzki's periodically. So I feel justified in incorporating that into my playing time projection, but giving him more and in, in not him not getting that 15-day DL stint that, that he misses a month and, you know, turns out to play 130 games. So I can project him for 145, and now he gets those additional plate appearances and Maybe he's not my number one player, but if he certainly shows up in the top 10 or top 15, I'm not going to have Twitter trolls attacking my account, wondering how come I hate the Rockies so much. He did leave the game the other day with a toe injury on his right foot. It turned out to not be that serious of an issue, not yet anyways, but I'm sure it made a lot of Troy Tulowitzki owners uh, feel a little bit... uh, tight in the britches, shall we say, (laughs) because as you say, uh, Troy Tulowitzki has that reputation for injuries and a lot of lost time, even though when you do look back at his past five years or so, it does seem at least somewhat unjustified. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Todd Zola from BaseballHQ.com and ESPN.com and FantasyAlarm.com and MastersBall.com. Gosh, everywhere in the on the World Wide Web, you can find Todd Zola writing about fantasy baseball, and you should. Uh, Todd, you've pinch hit for Eric Carabell at ESPN.com, and you wrote about a couple of trade offers that you had sent out in some of your leagues. In one of them, you offered from pitchers James Shields or Corey Kluber. And then in another trade, you offered out either Edward Encarnacion or Jose Abreu. Then you asked some industry colleagues, who would you rather have out of each pair? And the answer surprised you and me, I have to say. What went on with those uh, responses? Well, it all emanated from the original response where in one league, I received a lot more enthusiastic replies for Corey Kluber than I did James Shields. And in the second, I received a few, or uh, the, the interest of Jose Abreu was a little stronger than I anticipated in comparison to Edward Encarnacion. These both, you know, if I had been posed this question by a league mate, I would have been all over James Shields and and, and Edward Encarnacion. And it just, I was a little surprised that I got so much interest in the others. Although I shouldn't have been, because as we'll talk about in a second, I sort of suspected that I would get interest in these other players. This has more to do with the the human element, horse trading element of trading in that I know that both Kluber and Obreu are sort of internet darlings, as it were, with the fantasy brethren. A lot of our industry pundits have adopted uh, Kluber and Obreu as sort of their guys, their bromances, as the kids say. Uh, so I, I put it out there figuring there might be someone in each league willing to pay me a little more for their name because of they just happen to like these players for for various reasons, uh, but you know, cutting all that out is, is you know, I want to win my league. I would prefer James Shields and uh, Edwin and Carnacion if I was acquiring one of them. And I thought so. I wanted to find out was this just a couple couple guys in each of these leagues that happen to have a man crush on the other player, or is this how more people felt? So, as I, I mentioned, I, I was at the Fantasy, Fantasy Sports Trade Association conference this week, so I thought, what a better place to do than conduct a, an informal straw poll of my, my colleagues and ask them that question real quick, Shields or Kluber or Double E and Abreu. And I, uh, I, I managed to, to bother 39 of them. And uh, as you mentioned, it's, it's, post, I, we, we'll, it's posted in the Insider for Eric's, Eric Carabell's uh, 
taking vacation. I'm just writing for him this week. And uh, I found that more people wanted Shields and more people wanted an Encarnacion. But I was still taken aback by the percentage that wanted the uh, the new kid in town, that wanted Kluber or wanted Abreu. So it just sort of got me thinking why and, you know, the the dynamics of trading and, and fantasy baseball and such and why that might be. And you say in the column it may indicate a bit of a sea change in how we approach the game. Uh, you mentioned, for instance, that had you asked this question at an industry conference 10 years ago, you would got laughed out of the room. Of course, everybody would want Shields and everybody would want Encarnacion because the prevailing philosophy was go for the sure thing, limit your risk, be very careful, and this was because the structure of games at the time was different, was a lot more 4x4, four four, a lot more no reserve lists or extremely limited reserve lists in case things didn't go right. And so at that time, it seems to make sense. Now, according to your colleagues that you um, petitioned about this question, they were all excited, those who chose Kluber, those who chose Abreu, mentioned upside, and that's a really big change in how people think about the game. Right, and I don't know if it's because of that's more of a fantasy football philosophy than it is fantasy baseball, or if it's just the new breed and that's just the way of thinking in general is to look for upside, or perhaps it's just because the information gap has closed so much that the way that you get the edge is with upside. But, you know, that's what that's what the that's the new trick you have to teach us old dogs in that sometimes we have to throw away the algorithms that we sort of alluded to before and go for the upside. Uh, you know, I, one of the, you know, I, I know what I'm going to get from Shields and I know what I'm going to get from Encarnacion. When I heard that, I'm thinking, yeah, but that's pretty darn good. You know, you want more than that? And some people, actually a couple of people did say, well, if, if the premise is you're making a trade, then yeah, I want more than that. So I guess, you know, they were thinking, you know, taking my question and I was kind of happy that they were sort of applying the fact that I was, you know, putting a situation of a trade, or, you know, posing around the question. Uh, but, you know, so that, that made a little sense that, you know, if my team really needs help, I want the upside. But just in general, I, you know, in, in what it does, though, is it, is it tells me if I'm, if I'm making a trade, if I'm posing a trade, if I'm you know putting out a cattle call, don't expect that I'm going to get more back for James Shields. Uh, either offer a choice or, or, or something. Don't anticipate what your opponents are thinking. Let them tell you what they're thinking. You might be surprised. And if I, if I value Shields more than Kluber, I'm actually happy that someone wants to give me more for Kluber back because in my mind... I'm keeping the better pitcher and getting back more than I would have for Shields. Apply the same scenario to uh, to the first baseman. So from my end, you know, I, I like that sort of thing. Uh, you know, had I just put Shields on the block and, and, and seen what I got for him, at the end of the day, you know, maybe maybe the person, maybe I just made a trade for Shields and, and left a better trade for Kluber on the table. Who knows? You also mentioned in the column, the uh, going back to the whole idea of algorithms and spreadsheets versus eyeball experience, that uh, the spreadsheet, while it never forgets anything, is also, and I like the way you put it, naive to why things are done. It doesn't understand about pitch selection changes, for instance. Yeah, and I this is sort of an ongoing... Uh, it, it, people that know my, read me on ESPN over the years know that I have this, we do updated rankings and whatnot, and mine are usually different than the group think and it 
I think it has to do with I'm very spreadsheet oriented and I think others not just at ESPN but everywhere more you know sort of move guys up and down by hand and and that sort of thing based upon what they see which I don't know that there's anything wrong with that because as I pointed out to me the advantage of a spreadsheet is I'm not going to forget a guy I'm not going to forget how a player is doing I'm not going to overlook how well Gordon Beckham's actually playing with Chicago if even if I don't realize it because I don't happen to watch a lot of White Sox games because this you know if I just dump the data into the spreadsheet it's there and you know but I might not know why we we mentioned Justin Verlander you know I might you know, a similar player is Matt Kane I might you know, my spreadsheet is also very very optimistic about Matt Kane and is that unjust however if someone is basing it upon what they're seeing they may not have a rosy of opinion on Matt Cain. So the, the spreadsheet's not going to come back and ask me, dude, you want to put Matt Cain lower? It's just going to leave him where he is, and he's going to be pretty high. Whereas someone that does a list more intuitively uh, is probably going to have Matt Cain, similar to Justin Verlander, a lot lower than I am. So I think I need to use the spreadsheet as a foundation, but as I mentioned before, have some sort of trigger in there that points out potential up and down extremes that I need to take a, a look at by hand. And finally, Todd, uh, we've talked about trade dynamics before, but your column covers some of that ground, and I just wanted to go over it quickly for listeners who haven't heard it before, or just a quick reminder. One of the advantages of putting a trade out there in the form of, you know, take your pick of Kluber or Shields, is that it creates in the recipient the illusion of controlling the deal. Yeah, it's it, it, the old mind games, the old head games that you play within within a trade. Uh, so the there are some people out there who you know the old need to get the last word in principle. They need to make it seem like you're saying yes to them. And I'm personally, I'm fine with that. I, as long as you know, I just want a trade that works. And if I know someone's gonna need, I need to accept their offer to get it done. And I I know it, then I'm fine, and I will. I'll, you know, if they, if they, if I know they're going to come back and take my offer and add on two dollars a fab in order to make it done, you know what? I'm going to do it. Like we've talked about that before. Uh, but to me, one of the cute ways of keeping control, but yet looking like giving the perception that the the, the your competitors in control is offering a list. This you so they're they're choosing. So in their head, they're they're in control. They want this guy. They want the third player on that list. But you set the list, and you're not going to set it. You're not going to put names on that list that you're not okay with. So sort of a precondition of the list is you're fine with it. So in essence, you really are in control because you're putting a boundary on what they can choose. So it's kind of it's kind of a win-win. And if, if that is enough to sort of massage the other guy into thinking that, you know, he's getting what he wants, fine by me. But, you know, he just doesn't remember that. He, you know, he's not asking for a guy off the list. I, it's a precondition. I'm fine to trade this guy. You can have Kluber or Shields as long as I like what it's getting back. I don't care which. If you prefer Kluber and feel that, you know, you're making the decision, you know, more power to you. Great, Todd. Thanks very much for talking with us again this week. We'll catch up with you again next Friday. All right, Patrick. I'm already looking forward to it. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, ChandlerPark.com, FantasyAlarm.com, Masters Ball ESPN, and he appears every Friday here on Baseball HQ Radio.
Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. Stay with us for pitcher matchups and master notes on Baseball HQ Radio. Played all the sports as a young boy, but it was always baseball that I loved the most. I collected baseball cards as a hobby and one day dream of what it would be like to have my picture on one of those cards. You see, I always have been a fan of the game first and a ball player second. Maybe that's why I had the love and passion for this great game so much. I only caught five or six games my senior year of high school. But during those five or six games, a scout by the name of Bob Zuck, who is here with us today, believed I could become a big league catcher someday. He held true to his word, and on the night of the draft, at 18 years of age, I signed a contract with the Expos and started my, making plans to head off to Jamestown, New York. Bob, thanks for believing in me. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular Friday commentaries. Ray Murphy is on deck with Master Notes, and we lead off with our matchup segment. Our Baseball HQ matchup ratings look at every starting pitcher matchup by pitcher skills and their recent performance, as well as the strength of the opposing teams. We arrive at a matchup rating from plus 5 to minus 5, recommending pitchers with ratings of 2.0 or higher, while warning you against pitchers with ratings of 0 or worse. Everything in between is a risk versus benefit play you'll have to assess given your team and league context. Now looking at coming matchups for Texas right-hander Nicholas Martinez at L.A. to face the Angels right-hander Jared Weaver, Pittsburgh right-hander Vance Worley taking on the Cubs southpaw Travis Wood in Chicago, and more. Here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. It's the summer solstice on Saturday. In honor of the warmer weather ahead, Let's use the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool to see who's hot. Five teams have both of their starters recommended this weekend, one in the American League and four in the National League. In the American League, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim are in line for quite a homestand. The Pitcher Matchups tool shows nothing but green recommended matchup ratings for every starter in the Angels' rotation. And the Angels' home record is fifth best in the majors. Their Saturday starter is Jared Weaver, with a matchup rating of 287. He has six PQS dominant starts at home and no PQS disasters. The Rangers counter with rookie Nicholas Martinez, who has a matchup rating of minus 037. Three of his five road starts have been PQS disasters. On Sunday, the Angels send Matthew Shoemaker to the hill. In May, I said Shoemaker is no ace, but in his six starts, he has an area PQS disaster and now owns four PQS doms. His matchup rating of 241 is nearly a full point better than his opponent's 146. His base performance value also outshines his opponent's 145 to 122. And his opponent is an ace. It's you, Darvish. If Shoemaker outpitches Darvish, I'll at least have to say he beat an ace. Of the four National League teams with both starters recommended this weekend, the most surprising is the Chicago Cubs. The first surprise is that neither of the two recommended pitchers is Jeff Samarja. The Cubs are also at home, where they are one game over 500, and they face the Pittsburgh Pirates, who are five games under 500 on the road. 
On Saturday, Travis Wood carries the third highest matchup rating of the weekend into his start, a 317. Five of his six home starts have been PQS fives, including one against Pittsburgh. His opponent has the second highest matchup rating of the weekend, a 335. But that's based on only one start for the recently rediscovered Vance Worley. Worley did have a wonderful first start this year, but he also had a woeful season last year. On Sunday, the Cubs send out Jason Hamill with a matchup rating of 250. He goes against Brandon Compton, who has a matchup rating barely above zero at 001. Hamill has been a very pleasant surprise this season, flashing career best control and dominance, also known as walk rate and strikeout rate, for a base performance value of 120. 13 of Hamill's 14 starts have been PQS dominant, including all five at home. Meanwhile, two of Cupton's three road starts have been PQS disasters. Cubs fans should have a warm weekend at Wrigley. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. If your league rules or format let you take advantage of pitcher streaming, then you need to check out daily matchups reports at BaseballHQ.com as well as the exclusive Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups tool. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and with a look at climbing out of a hole, here's BaseballHQ.com speculator columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Last week on Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt and I were talking about how to rehab a struggling fantasy team and how much effort we would put into it before declaring the team a lost cause. I made the point that a lot depends on the nature of the problem, especially in mixed leagues. If you have a broken pitching staff and trashed your ratios early in the season, it's a long haul to try and dig out of that hole. But the good news is that in mixed leagues, there is a steady stream of new starting pitchers entering the player pool, and tools like our starting pitcher report and our call-up reports are very helpful in identifying both the short and long-term targets from within those emerging options. So, while rehabbing a pitching staff can be a long grind, at least there are players and tools that you can deploy in that battle. If, on the other hand, it's a lack of offensive production that is killing your team, that could be an almost unrecoverable problem in a mixed league. Counting stats add up so quickly that category deficits can quickly become insurmountable, and a lack of helpful hitters in the free agent pool limits your ability to upgrade your roster that way. Unfortunately, this lack of offensive production is exactly the problem that is ruining my National Fantasy Baseball Championship team this year. As of this writing, my team has 15 and a half out of a possible 75 points on offense. It's an everything that can, can go wrong will go wrong situation, at least as far as the hitters are concerned. The good news is that the pitching staff is picking up the slack. It has 62 and a half out of a possible 75 pitching points. No doubt, it will be a challenge to maintain that kind of elite pitching standing for the rest of the year. But if that standing does hold, it lowers the ceiling on how much of a hitting turnaround I need to engineer. Turning a 15-point offense into a 50-point offense is probably too big a mountain to climb. But climbing back to having a very average 40-point offense might be more attainable, and the resulting 100-point total might be enough for a money finish. How to approach a turnaround like this? Step one, identify the root causes. In our case, there is a little mystery about how we found ourselves in this position. 
Carlos Gonzalez and Joey Votto were our first two draft picks. Both have spent time on the DL, and neither has performed up to anything nearing expectations when healthy. We invested heavily in catchers, drafting Carlos Santana and Brian McCann in rounds 5 and 6. Both have been big disappointments. Seventh-round draft pick Everth Cabrera was supposed to be our stolen base cornerstone. His 30 stolen base pace isn't bad, but it's well short of the 50-plus we were counting on. None of our endgame dart throws hit the target in a big way, so we haven't gotten much in the way of unexpected overperformance to cancel out these disappointments. Instead, we got more injuries and disappointments in the back of the draft. Nick Swisher, Chase Headley, David Freeze, to name a few. The nature of these problems didn't leave a lot of decisions to be made. The NFBC is a no-trading format, so turning some of our pitching strength into hitter upgrades isn't an option. Given the top draft picks we invested here, there's little choice but to hang on with this group of slow starters and wait for them to snap back into form. Step 2. Stop the bleeding. The first rule of getting out of a hole? Stop digging. Even though we couldn't give up on these supposed premium talents who were giving us disappointing performances, we had to patch the roster anyway. Dealing with the DL stints and patching around the edges of the roster has yielded a few helpful additions. We added Seth Smith and Lonnie Chisenhall in April, Michael Saunders in May, Matt Joyce more recently. Chisenhall has been a gem, and the others have at least provided incremental backfill, which is a necessary part of the recovery process. Now, most league hosting sites will offer you some method of viewing your team's stats across various time slices, which can be a helpful way to measure your team's trend or direction in the various categories. In a deficit situation like ours, the key is to stop the hemorrhaging as soon as possible, before the category gaps get completely out of control. This team had an early problem with batting average that served as a boat anchor on the rest of the counting stats. To track progress toward fixing that problem, I've been using a four-week rolling batting average in, as an indicator of improvement. And starting in week five, our four-week rolling batting average was 235, and it's been climbing incrementally until this past week. At the end of week 12, the rolling four-week number was at 263. Obviously, that's a solid trend line. The recent dip in weekly at-bats that has gone along with that has been a blow. That's a result of a couple of injuries where we got caught early in the week where we didn't have a position-eligible sub available on our bench. But the recent batting averages are in line with the better teams in the league. Only four of the 15 teams have a batting average over 265. So if we can sustain a mid-260s batting average going forward, that would likely drive enough cascading gains in runs, RBIs, and possibly even home runs to get us back into the pack in those categories where we're lagging. The final step in our recovery plan is to use the whole calendar. Even if this offense has been truly stabilized, it will take a while to work off the damage of the slow start. The good news is, there is a whole lot of season left. Most MLB teams will have conveniently played just over 80 games by the end of June, which serves as a much better halfway marker than the All-Star break a couple of weeks later. Still, the break itself makes for a nice milestone as well. My goal between now and then is to hopefully sustain these recent batting average levels, max out on at-bats, and at the break hope to find that we have crept back into the lower ends of the main packs around these hitting categories. If so, then we'll still have two-plus months on the far side of the break to try and elbow our way up through those packs, which is where we will hopefully be able to gobble up those 20 to 25 points we need to get back into having an average offense. Hopefully... A stretch of good health and our top draft picks producing like top draft picks should produce what will be enough of a boost to drive that surge. Oh, 
And let's not forget, we need to maintain those elite pitching numbers. You're probably thinking that this projected rebound isn't that likely. And maybe you're right. But in my mind, as long as you can see a path to executing this kind of turnaround, you have to follow it. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and the speculator columnist at the site. He's also a member of the Masternotes rotation at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition for June the 20th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 44 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our regular Friday talk with Todd correspondent was Todd Zola. Our HQ matchups commentator, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. And our Master Notes commentator was Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Be the first to know when the new shows are up. More importantly, though, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in four days with our Tuesday Tout Edition, featuring Yahoo Sports fantasy columnist Scott Pianowski. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>